Let's go to our Lord in prayer. That as it goes forth through the means of grace, via teaching and preaching, we pray that it will do so by the anointing power of the Holy Spirit, clothing every word that will be opening up your word with illumination that will greatly affect, that will greatly sanctify, we pray, holy God, your people this day. We pray, Lord, that greater sanctification will be wrought in our hearts because of the truth of your word opened up to us. We therefore pray that as we part our ways from this holy place today, may we be by your grace, Lord, through the preached word, fashioned a little more into the image of your eternal Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. These things we humbly and earnestly ask of you in the name and for the sake of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I invite you this morning to take the Word of God and let's turn to the book of Romans. To the book of Romans. And God willing, next Sunday I'll say the Gospel of John and then really surprise you and say chapter 8. <laughs> Romans chapter 12 is where we want to be today. Romans chapter 12, looking this morning at what I'm calling the essential mark of Christian living. The essential mark of Christian living. Romans 12 reading one verse, one verse of Scripture. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, authoritative and sufficient word of the living, eternal God. In 1970, noted Christian apologist, evangelist, and author, Francis Schaeffer, introduced his book, The Mark of the Christian, with the following important observation. Schaeffer wrote this, Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks in the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks, even had special haircuts. Of course, there's nothing wrong with any of this if one feels it is his calling. But there is a much better sign, a mark that has not been thought up just as a matter of expediency for, some, for use on some special occasion or in some specific era. It is, a, it is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. What is this mark? At the close of his ministry, Jesus looks forward to his death on the cross, the open tomb, and the ascension. Knowing that he is about to leave, Jesus prepares his disciples for what is to come. It is here 
that he makes clear what will be the distinguishing mark of the Christian. And now quoting from John chapter 13, 33-35, and in the King James Version. One of the only times you'll hear this. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. This passage, Schaefer says, reveals the mark that Jesus gives to label a Christian not just in one era or in one locality, but at all times and all places until Jesus returns. Now what Francis Schaeffer is bringing to our attention straight from God's word with such simplicity and directness is that within the church, among fellow Christians, there is no higher virtue that should set us apart from the rest of the world than our love for one another. And based on the biblical passage that Schaefer cites to validate this claim, the love that Christians are to express is none other than the love of Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, it is a love which does not originate in the heart of a sinful man, but in fact, it comes from God. Thus, when the world looks at the church, when the world sees a Christian, the most essential characteristic the world should observe is the love of God in his people. Now, the reason I bring this to your attention is because of where we're heading this morning in our study of Romans 12 in verse 9. In the broader context of Romans chapter 12, verse 9 actually opens up a subsection to a larger discussion which the Apostle Paul started in verse 3 of this same chapter. The theme Paul is expounding in this passage has to do with Christian service as it is connected within the local church. So beginning in verse 3, Paul revealed first the attitude that must undergird this service, which is humility. Secondly, in verses 4 and 5, there must be a biblical understanding of the church itself, specifically as the body of Christ. And then thirdly, in verses 6 through 8, there must be a recognition of particular spiritual gifts which God has placed in every Christian. Each of these points is interconnected with what makes for healthy biblical service rendered by believers in a local church. Showing humility toward one another as members of Christ's body, spiritually gifted to serve each other for the glory of God. That is the basic teaching and thrust of Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. But as we approach Romans 12 in verse 9, as just mentioned, this verse begins a new subsection under the same theme. In fact, from verses 9 through 13, the Apostle Paul sets forth a series of imperatives which all focus on how Christians relate to each other. In other words, as we are serving one another with those gifts God has given us, the service of those gifts must be married to godly virtues. 
or to put this proposition in the form of a question. What should be the conduct of fellow Christians as they are serving one another? What should be the conduct of fellow Christians as they are serving one another? As we are exercising those gifts which the Holy Spirit has entrusted to us, what should characterize our conduct, our behavior in the exercise of these gifts? Well, the answer to such a question is what the Apostle Paul composed by the Holy Spirit's inspiration in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. But our focus this morning is to zero in strictly, exclusively in verse 9. The reason this verse should call for our exclusive attention is because Romans 12 and verse 9, in verse 9 raises before us the highest virtue to be seen in every Christian at all times. It is the virtue of love. Paul writes here in verse 9, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. It should not surprise us that this is where Paul begins his discussion of Christian conduct. As we've already observed from John chapter 13, 33-35, it is our love for one another that Jesus tells us will be the distinguishing and unique mark to the world that we are his disciples. Think about that. Think about what Christ said. Feel the weightiness of that. By this, Jesus said, by this all will know you are my disciples. By what? Your love for one another. Your love for one another. In short, this will be the test of Christianity before the world. This will be the test. This is the importance to which our Lord Jesus attaches to the practice of this godly virtue. Responding to these words of Christ in John 13, I want you to consider what J.C. Ryle wrote. There can be no mistake about these words. Love, <clears throat> love was to be the grand characteristic, the distinguishing mark of Christ's disciples. Let us note our Lord does not name gifts or miracles, or intellectual attainments, but love, the simple grace of love, a grace within reach of the poorest, loneliest believer as the evidence of discipleship. If we have no love, we have no grace, no regeneration, no true Christianity. So then, as we approach Romans 12 and verse 9, let us be clear as to what we are seeing in this imperative. The first and greatest mark of Christian character and conduct is love. But let us be equally clear that it's not just any kind of love. It is Christian love. It is Christ-like love. It is godly love. This is love which resides only in Christians as the result of being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is therefore a love 
that shows itself first by having a love for Jesus Christ, loving Him supremely above all things. Moreover, it is a love that shows itself by obeying Christ. Furthermore, it is a love that shows itself by loving what Christ loves. Loving His Word, His church, His righteousness, holiness, godliness. So when we speak of Christian love, we're not talking about a love that is common or natural to man. But this is love which the Bible identifies as supernatural because it comes from God. This is why Galatians 5.22 calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Romans 5 and verse 5 describes it as the love of God being poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, the presence and possession of this love, listen, it is the proof that we have been born again and we know God in a saving way. So then the imperative of Romans 12 and verse 9 cannot be carried out by just anyone. It can only be carried out by Christians because it is only in those who have been born again, trusting in Christ alone as their Savior, following Him as their Lord, in whom the love of God will be manifested. However, saying this, I must make this all-important qualifying remark. While the presence and possession of God's love is in the Christian Yet it is not in him in all its perfection. Every believer in Jesus Christ is in the process of growing into the likeness of Christ's character. And this process, as you have heard me say many, many, many times, this process is lifelong. It is lifelong. The Bible calls this sanctification and so in the context of christians walking in love we must understand that this is a process of spiritual growth and maturity in some christians there will be seen greater manifestations of love than in other christians the difference however is where they are in the process of sanctification furthermore the presence of indwelling sin will impede the growth of God's love in every Christian at all times. Now, with all of that before us, let's turn to the exposition of Romans 12 and verse 9. In this one single verse of Scripture, the Apostle Paul sets forth two dominating characteristics of authentic Christian love. We will see that Christian love is first sincere and then secondly it is discriminating it is sincere and it is discriminating to begin with then let's notice that christian love is sincere paul writes in the opening words of romans 12 9 let love be genuine it is of first importance that we recognize the word paul employs here for love it is the Greek word hagape. Hagape. The significance of this word is that in the Greek culture of the first century, hagape 
was not the standard word used to define love. In fact, it wasn't used but in the most rare occasions. The reason for this was due to what agape stood for. It defined love as centering on the needs and welfare of the one loved and the willingness to sacrifice whatever personal price was necessary to meet those needs and foster that welfare. To your run-of-the-mill pagan of the first century, this concept of love as being completely unselfish and sacrificial, even to the point of losing everything you had for the benefit of the other person, that kind of love to the first century pagan was unthinkable. Completely unthinkable. Worse than that, it was even absurd because in the mind of the first century pagan, this kind of love, agape, showed weakness rather than strength. And yet, as the Holy Spirit was inspiring the New Testament writers using the common language of first century Greek, Koine Greek, there was no single word in that language more fitting to define Christian love than the term Hagape. This word, above all others, could easily describe the love of God that is shown to sinners through the sacrificial death of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. It is this kind of love which the Holy Spirit is now developing in God's people. And it is this love that Romans 12 in verse 9 is commending to us to be always genuine. Now when Paul says here, let love be genuine, what is he telling us about Christian love? What is this characteristic that, that should be seen in Christian love? Well, the word translated genuine comes from a Greek word that means literally without a mask. Without a mask. This term was tied to the way in which actors in the Greek theater would carry tragic, comic, or melodramatic masks to signal the role they were playing. What Paul therefore is saying to fellow Christians is that the love we show must be always always without a theater mask. In other words, when we show love as Christians, it must never be put on or to be playing a role. Instead, it must be genuine. It must be sincere. It must be real and not fake. Or as John R. W. Stott put it, the church must not turn itself into a stage. For love is not theater, it belongs to the real world. Professor John Murray also weighed in on this matter by saying this, No vice is more reprehensible than hypocrisy. No vice is more destructive of integrity because it is the contradiction of truth. 
Our Lord exposed its diabolical character when he said to Judas, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? If love is the sum of virtue and hypocrisy the epitome of vice, what a contradiction to bring these together. Pretending affection. Pretending affection. And yet how often, how often have we seen in the church pretending affection? How many times have we seen a Judas, someone who appears to be with us, for us, makes great words of affection in our behalf only to betray themselves in the end as nothing but hypocrites? It was all an act, a mere show. It was a a role they were playing for some selfish agenda they were trying to achieve. I dare say the visible church is full of such pretenders. But we must also admit with great shame that the Judas we see in others is the Judas we can detect even in our own hearts. How many times have we been guilty of putting on a love that was not, not really there toward other people? For those of us who have been trained well in our southern culture to always put on this air that we're everybody's friend, our poor Yankees here have no understanding of this, but it's the southern way. No matter, who it is, no matter who it is, we've been trained well to mask this politeness and courtesy communicated in a host of pleasantries. And in those pleasantries, we, we, we can put on, maybe not intentionally, inadvertently, but we can put on to this other person as if we are somehow their best friend, their closest friend, while in our hearts we can't stand them. In fact, as soon as they leave, what do we do? Oh, well, we talk about them in critical ways to someone else. I'm sure none of you know what I'm even talking about here. Now, while this may be acceptable for Southern culture, my dear people, it is an abomination in the sight of a holy God because this is nothing but rank hypocrisy. It is a stage. It is a put-on. It is playing a role. It is not genuine. It is not sincere. But Christian love is sincere. There's nothing fake or untrue about Christian love. And when by the Holy Spirit we are walking in this love, we are walking in agape, the way we treat others will be out of a heart that sincerely, honestly cares for their welfare. Listen, despite who they are, despite what they've done, despite what they will or will not give me in return. Look at our Lord Jesus Christ. In him we see this love in all its perfection. To those who hated him, for example, Jesus never put on an air of being chummy. 
and acting as if they, his enemies, were best friends. But nevertheless, Jesus showed compassion toward them. He showed a real concern to them. He pled with them to repent, to come to him for salvation. His love toward his enemies was always sincere. It was genuine. And this is what Romans 12 and verse 9 is commending and exhorting to be true in all of us as Christ's church. Let love be genuine. Don't play the fake. Don't be the hypocrite. Show forth a love that is sincerely selfless, sacrificial, self-giving in the spirit of Jesus Christ. The truth is, if we are saved, then, then we must love without hypocrisy. Since this is the very nature of the love that has been placed within us by God himself. So, what we are being told to do here in Romans 12 and verse 9, listen to this. What we're being told to do is not beyond who we are as the new creation in Christ. Nevertheless, we must be exhorted to love without hypocrisy for the simple reason that though we are redeemed by grace, though we are indwelled by the Spirit, though we are that new creation in Jesus Christ, yet we're still fallen and sinful. And so the exhortation must still come to us. So let's test ourselves here. Is the love we're showing to others genuine? Is it sincere? Are we demonstrating true Christian love, the love of God in our hearts? Are we putting on a love that is real? Or could it be, could it be that we are putting on a love that is fake? Think especially about how you treat those you tend to dislike. Do you, do you act like you're their best friend or do you honestly respect the fact that there is no friendship there but nevertheless you will treat them with kindness and compassion? When Jesus commanded us to love our enemies in Matthew chapter 5, now, now listen to this and understand. When Jesus commanded us to love our, to love our enemies in Matthew chapter 5, this did not mean get chummy with them pretend that they are not, in fact, your enemies. That is not at all what Jesus intended by that command. Rather, we love them, our Lord teaches us, by praying for them, showing them compassion, and yet, and yet, never denying the fact that they're still our enemies. We don't pretend we're friends when the truth is we're not. Our love for them is without hypocrisy. And this will always be one of the dominating characteristics that will be seen in all of us as Christ's church if we are walking faithfully in his love. Christian love is always sincere. It is always sincere. 
But this is not all that we're told about Christian love in Romans 12 and verse 9. In addition to this love being sincere, notice secondly, Christian love is discriminating. It is discriminating. Reading again, Romans 12, verse 9, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. In this latter half of Romans 12 and verse 9, Paul uses two verbs, abhor and hold fast. He uses them as participles, which links them directly to his first statement about love and shows how Christian love is to operate. Let love be genuine, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. Authentic Christian love is not only sincere, but it also discriminates between that which is evil and good. To say this another way, Christian love does not love everything. Christian love does not love everything. But in fact, when we're walking in the love of Jesus Christ, we will abhor that which is evil. And we will hold fast to what is good. Let's look a little closer at this text. The verb translated abhor is a strong, forcible word expressing a deep feeling of horror. More precisely, it refers to having an utter aversion and hatred for something. In this context, we are being told that authentic Christian love hates whatever is evil. Now, what is evil? Well, evil is anything that is in active, militant opposition to what is good. Biblically speaking, it is anything that opposes God and His will. That is evil. And the love of Jesus Christ in His church hates this, abhors it with a total disdain and disgust. But let's understand what this looks like. To abhor what is evil is not to merely avoid doing bad things, but it, is to, but it is to find evil to be repulsive in itself. It means that we cannot bring ourselves to see any pleasure or entertainment in what is evil. Those things which are clearly opposed to God and seek to undermine the truth of His Word and the standard of His holiness are found to be completely offensive in our hearts. That is to abhor what is evil. But while we are abhorring what is evil, the Apostle Paul also tells us we are, we are to be holding fast to what is good. The verb Paul uses here, translated as to hold fast, comes from a Greek word that carries the idea to glue or cement together. And the good refers, of course, to whatever is good in God's sight. So as we're walking in the love of Jesus Christ, this love will be seen in us by its sincerity on the one hand and by its hatred for evil and clinging to good on the other hand. The love of God, therefore, compels us to reject whatever is sinful while calling us to embrace whatever is holy and righteous. Now, the best explanation of what this looks like within the church is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 
13. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This chapter has been rightly called the love chapter because it is the most exhaustive definition in all of God's word regarding the nature and conduct of Christian love. You will never find any portion of God's word that is more detailed, that is more exhaustive than this one section on what godly, Christian, Christ-like love looks like in the people of God within the context of the local church, how we are to treat one another in love. But what is most helpful for us is that 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7 sets forth in plain terms what it means to to be abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good in how we treat each other in the church. In this passage, Paul tells us, he tells us what love is. And he also tells us what love is not. The positive traits of love are the good that we must stick to like glue, while the negative traits that are opposed to love is the evil we must hate, we must abhor. Now, let's just read, to begin with, let's just read verses 4 through 7. And then let's draw in closely and look at these terms. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. Or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then, of course, verse 8 love never ends. So let's consider these two categories, the positive traits, the negative traits, what love is, what love is not. In the first place, let's notice the good. The good that Christian love clings to. We're told in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4 that love is patient and kind. It is patient and kind. By patience which is that wonderful Greek word, makrothumio. Christian love is able to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of by a person over and over again while never retaliating. The old King James translation of this word, makrothumio, is actually the better translation because it gets more to the literal rendering of that word. It says, love is long-suffering. Long-suffering. 
It takes a long time before fuming and breaking into flames. Love is slow to be roused to resentment. If we're walking in Christ-like love, putting on that love, pursuing that love by the power of the Spirit, then we will suffer long with whoever is in our path. We will not get easily irritated with them. We will not break out in a hot temper at them. Indeed, we'll not be quick-tempered at all. We will be molasses slow to anger because love is patient. It's patient. But not only is it patient, Paul tells us it's also kind. It is kind. What does that mean? That word translated kind. Well, here's what I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean nice. It doesn't mean nice. Most, most, most Christians today, when they think of kindness, they think of being nice. That is not at all what this term means. No. Christian love in kindness is always seeking to help others in their greatest need. Serving them, encouraging them, working for the other person's welfare. That's what that word means, to be kind. Selflessly giving yourself to the needs of others. This is the conduct of true Christian love, and it is the good we're to hold fast to. But in addition to being patient and kind, Paul goes on to define the conduct of Christian love in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 6 and 7. As rejoicing with the truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. Now let's consider each of these characteristics very briefly. First, Christian love takes its greatest delight in the truth of God. While it hates falsehood, it loves the truth. Secondly, it always seeks to protect others from exposure, ridicule, or harm. What are we told about love? It bears all things. It bears all things. It bears all things, beloved, by not exploiting the sins of others for the sake of ridicule or personal injury. Godly love is discreet. It is discreet. Thirdly, it believes all things. By not being cynical or always suspicious about others. It will not cast a final judgment until all the facts have been given. And even then, even then, it will be looking for the best possible outcome. Fourthly, it hopes all things. By not giving up on someone because they're still unrepentant and unbelieving. Christian love clings to God and His grace as being able to overrule man's sinful heart and set the captive free. It hopes all things. And finally, we're told that love endures all things. How does it do that? It endures all things by standing against overwhelming opposition and refusing to stop 
bearing, believing, and hoping. Christian love, godly love, will simply but quite profoundly never stop loving. Love endures all things. Now you see, that's a quality, that's a a remarkable quality of godly Christ-like love that is nothing like the love of this world. The love of this world is fickle. It is fickle. It's here for you today, but there's no guarantee that it'll be here for you tomorrow. I love you today, but I may be out of love for you tomorrow. That's not Christian love. That's not godly, Christ-like love. It's not. It endures all things. So, when we're walking in the love of Christ, this is how we're to treat each other positively. We show everyone patience, kindness, forbearance, a delight for the truth, protection from harm, trusting God for His grace working in them. These are the traits of God's love in His people that we, the people of God, must strive by the Holy Spirit to develop and grow in and cling to as the good God calls good. But there is an evil we must always be abhorring which is actively opposed to the love of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 6, verses 4 through 6, Paul tells us that Christian love is not envious, boastful, or arrogant, or rude. Moreover, it does not, <clears throat> it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful, and it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Now, here's what I want you to understand as a footnote to this. All those sins that Paul is listing there in 1 Corinthians 13, everything he's telling you that love is not, they were the very sins that were, that were wrecking the Corinthian church. Study the book of 1 Corinthians and you'll find every one of those sins. Every one of those sins. Paul was putting his finger on the very nerve of that church and its disobedience and its rebellion against God. This is how they were treating each other. They were not walking in love as they should have been by the grace of God. Well, let's look at these sinful traits. Each of these characteristics mark the evil that we must hate as Christians and strive to put to death even in our own hearts. So to begin with, we must abhor envy. Love does not envy. We must abhor envy by by rejoicing in the success of others and actually working for their success even when it overshadows our own. Now, that'll test if you're really denying yourself. 
Love does not envy. Second, we must also abhor boasting. That is being showy or pretentious, which is the parading of our accomplishments before others, all for the purpose of making ourselves look great and others envious, provoking others to envy us. We must further abhor arrogance by thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. You mean there are Christians who do that? Yes. Plenty. Who think they're the smartest, the greatest in the room. That's arrogance. That is not love. And my friend, when you are beset by that sin, you're clearly not walking in love. Repent. Moreover, we must abhor rudeness. Love, to quote the New King James translation, love does not behave rudely. We must abhor rudeness, which is being, what is rudeness? It's being careless, thoughtless, crude, overbearing on the feelings of others. So, if love does not behave rudely, then what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is that love is always tactful. It is always thoughtful. It is always sensitive. It is always respectful and considerate of other people's feelings. So, therefore... Got to meddle a little bit here. When someone greets you and says hello to you, well, then what do you do, Christian brother or sister? Here's a novel idea greet them back, reciprocate rather than intentionally ignoring them. Do you know what? When you are intentionally ignoring them, let me tell you something you're not walking in love, you're being rude. That's rudeness. And that's a sin, by the way. But you know, how many of us just, <laughs> how many of us as Christians, we, we, we overlook those kinds of transgressions. We just don't think that's just that big of a deal. Well, actually, it really is a big deal. Here's another bigger deal. When Jesus commands us to love our enemies, do you know one of the things he commands us to do in that? He commands us to actually greet them. Because our Lord says, he says, what is it to greet those who only love you? It takes no grace to do that. It takes no grace to do that. If you only greet those who love you, Jesus says, well, <laughs> what, what is that? No, greet your enemies. Greet those who perhaps may not return a greeting to you because they are your enemies. It's the grace it takes to walk in this love. We must also abhor self-seeking as well, which is nothing but the sin of rank selfishness. Going further, we must abhor being easily angered by others. 
There should not be an immediate irritation rise up in us when certain people enter our presence or their names mentioned in our hearing. We also must abhor being resentful. Now that is a most interesting word there that Paul uses. The word translated resentful. This is the sin of keeping a checkbook of all the wrongs done to us with the hope of getting even. Love is not that. It's not resentful. Finally, we must abhor any attraction or delight in wrongdoing. We must not sympathize with evil. This is the discriminating characteristic of Christian love. It is always abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good, and where this discriminating characteristic should be seen in ourselves the most is in how we treat each other. In fact, this is the whole point of Paul's exhortation here in Romans 12 and verse 9. This is about the way we relate to one another as fellow Christians, as I've already said. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. But beloved, let's test ourselves here. Is Romans 12 and verse 9 the mark of my life? Do we love one another without hypocrisy? Are the affections we have for one another real or are they fake? Are we pretending to love each other or is it genuine? Is it genuine? Is it sincere when we say, I love you? And do we really hate those sins that will damage our fellowship together? Do we abhor what is evil? So do we really hate the sin of envy, boasting, arrogance, rudeness, selfishness, unjustified anger, resentment, and delight in wrongdoing? Remember, this is not a question of whether or not you avoid these sins, but do you have a heartfelt hatred for them? We may avoid, listen, we may avoid the appearance of arrogance while thinking in our hearts that we're better than everybody in the room. And I've had Christians through the years confess that very sin to me. That that was a besetting sin with them. It's about what's happening here in the heart. God calls us to hate what is evil. This means that we must cultivate by the word of God and the spirit of God. A real genuine hatred for these sins that sees them for what they really are and refuses to have any association with them, no matter the cost. But the question is, are we doing this? Are we proactive in this part of our sanctification? But not only must we abhor what is evil, we must hold fast to what is good. And, are, and, and, and how are we really doing here? Are we sticking like glue to those good and godly traits in the conduct of Christian love, are we really patient with each other? Truly. Are we slow to anger and quick to forgive? How kind are we toward one another? Are we always looking for ways to help 
better our fellow Christians spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, socially? And do we lead our fellow Christians to greater delight in the truth? Beloved, this should be true of all of us if we have been born again. If God has indeed saved us by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then the essential mark of our lives and character will be the growth and the development of God's love in our hearts. We will be a people who are known by how we love one another. Loving one another in the same way that Jesus Christ has loved us. Love that is sincere. Love that is discriminating. Love that will point the world to Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished to save sinners. Again, let me just remind you, what did our Lord say? What did he say in John 13? And I will close with rehearsing this text to us again. John 13 Verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. In the same way that I've treated you, my apostles, my disciples, treat each other as I've treated you. He says in verse 35, By this... By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when the world out there looks into this local church, if they were to take a good hard look into the life of this local church and the brethren that are here, the professing Christians that are here, and look at how we treat each other what would they see? What would they see? That is an honest, fair question. Would they see professing Christians who actually love one another as Christ has loved them? Again, that is the distinguishing mark. That is the unique characteristic of the body of Jesus Christ. And if we are falling short in this, and I would dare say all of us as Christians fall short, because I don't see how you can read 1 Corinthians 13 and say, ah, yeah, piece of cake, got that licked. No, you don't. No, you don't. Reading 1 Corinthians 13 every day, as I did for four years for my own sanctification, hiding it in my own heart. Every day I read it, every day I was convicted, every day. Because none of us have arrived yet. None of us have reached perfection yet. That does not happen till we enter glory. And so when you bathe your heart and your mind in 1 Corinthians 13, a passage like that, 
you have to pray it back to the Lord and pray, oh God, sanctify me more in these virtues and strengthen me more to flee these vices, these sins. Wow, what would happen in a local church if the entire church family were doing that? Seriously doing that. And seriously making every effort to so walk in love, pursue love, put on love, which are all commandments in the New Testament. I believe the change would be remarkable, frankly, quite remarkable. And the true desire of a true Christian would say, yes, 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 I want that. I want that. Well, then pursue it. By the grace of God, pursue it. For the glory of God and for the good of his church, may we all be in such a pursuit. Let's pray. Our blessed Father, we thank you, Lord God, for how your word at times when opened up to us is like a scalpel to our hearts. It takes open our very hearts. It shows us what's really there, what should not be there and must be repented of. And yet the graces that are already there because of the Spirit that we need to continue to develop and grow and cultivate by the Spirit's power in the light of your word. And Holy Father, we plead in earnest with you today for such growth in the grace of the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we would grow, each one of us, personally and collectively as the body of Christ here more and more in that true godly love that is already resonant within our very hearts by the Holy Spirit. Growing in that love that is truly sincere. That is always abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. That love that is, that is patient and kind and does not envy is not boastful or arrogant, is not ever rude, does not seek its own, it is not easily irritated by others, nor is it resentful, nor rejoicing in that which is evil and wrong, but rejoicing in the truth. That love, Lord, that your word reveals to us bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. We pray, Holy Father, that this will be what marks our character and our conduct more and more and more and how we treat each other as the body of Christ and how we treat this very special family of God that we are linked together with here at Providence by covenant. We earnestly pray, Lord, work such grace in us, greater grace, for greater sanctification. 
in these things for the sake of Christ. We pray. Amen.